or some other friends and go out and have them hit me ball after ball after ball. You mean practice? Yeah, practice. You mean do it over and over and over again even though you miss it? Yeah. You notice in the handbook often it says practice, practice, practice? It's because it takes practice, practice, practice to learn new behaviors, to learn new attitudes, to learn to see yourself in different ways. It's not automatic. In old program, it's what we call those belief patterns that come automatically. They're not all bad, but that's what old program is. Those thoughts that come automatically from the process of coming from birth to the present time. In old program, I would assume there's something inherently wrong with me that I can't catch the ball. No, I haven't had practice. Once I faced that truth, something real important happened. Real important. I realized I had a choice. I could go out there with Bobby and Dave and a few other friends who love me, whether I catch the ball or not. I mean, absolute unconditional acceptance by these people. They might razz me a little bit, but it would be loving razzing, supportive razzing, not self-destructive razzing. There's a difference. Big difference. But I really have other things to do. I love coaching soccer with uh, Nathan's playing soccer, my eight-year-old. I love coaching soccer. I love spending time with my family. I don't like playing baseball, so why should I be out playing baseball? And why should I practice when I don't want to? There may be parts of your self-image as you begin to see yourself that you don't particularly like, but it's no big deal. You know, like maybe you have a real kind of phobic reaction to armadillos. <laughs> maybe y'all came from Texas. And in Texas, maybe having an armadillo fear is a problem. There's not a lot of armadillos in Modesto. You notice that? Seen any lately? I haven't. So if our goal is having choices, we might as well put our energy in areas that give the best return. So I'm going to let go of working on my armadillo fear and instead work on my intimacy fear. On the fear of allowing myself to be seen as is in transit. Imagine letting yourself be seen just the way you are by those you care about. Take a moment just to imagine that. Feel the permission. Now you can always take it back. You know, when you leave the auditorium, you can leave all this healthy stuff behind. Okay? I guarantee you, you can leave all the healthy stuff behind when you leave. Don't worry about being contaminated. You know, no sudden attacks of health. Okay? But just for a moment, while you're here, waiting for the bus, right? Some reason you're all here. Take a moment to feel the permission to be who you are in transit with those you care about. What would it feel like? 
What would you be experiencing if you had that permission? Where would you get the permission? Macy's is having a white letter sale? What? White, white flower? I, I, I'm also born to shop. Um, it's another real strong area of mine, which I haven't decided to work on a whole bunch, except my wife is helping me with it. <laughs> you're not going to get it at Macy's. You're not going to get it at Kmart. And you're not going to get it from that other person that you're wanting to be transparent with. The only person that can give you that permission is you. Oh, bummer! What a drag! I mean, I could blame the other person. Well, I guess I could blame myself. We do a lot of that too, don't we? That's not the point. Remember, we're just talking about pretending we have the permission? So we don't even have to blame for a moment. Just feel the permission to recognize that I, Jim, am the only one that can give Jim the permission to be transparent with Sonia. It's called powerful vulnerability. I'll be talking more about it in a little bit. Not only does our society bombard us with external definitions of self-esteem, which can be devastating, absolutely devastating, if things change, like we lose our job or whatever, but as children, as children growing up, we can't distinguish between who we are and what we do. As children, we are our mistakes, and we are our home runs. And it doesn't become developmentally possible to distinguish between who we are and what we do until we get older. So as our identity is forming, it is formed because of those developmental limitations around the notion that we are what we do. Add that to our society that's reinforcing that, and we have a real mess. We get those images of ourselves originally from the mirrors that we see ourselves reflected in, in our environment. Parents, siblings, neighbors, school, Take a moment, take a moment to consider what you got back in your reflections. As Jim, or Jimmy, which is what I was called at that time, as Jimmy looked in the mirror, what did the mirror say about who he was? Because who he was is what he did. So when he was flunking out of everything, he was an academic failure. When he couldn't catch the ball, he was a failure as a man or as a boy. The mirrors kept reinforcing the failure. 
So he learned with his self-esteem that he's a failure, that he's worth less. And out of that came the codependency. If I'm worth less, but if I can get someone to like me, then I can piggyback on them and get some value. That's what codependency is. So take a moment to consider the mirrors that you learn from. What kinds of messages did you see reflected back about who you are by how people treated you and the things that you did growing up? Take a moment to feel that question, to relax into that question, to really consider, to begin to learn about those mirrors. We didn't learn it by accident. We didn't get it off toilet seats. We got it through the mirrors in our lives. I want you to really think about the fact that you got it through those mirrors. I'm not blaming the mirrors. The fact is the mirrors had mirrors had mirrors, had mirrors. It goes back generation after generation. Recovery is not about blame. We need to understand that it's not about blame. But as you can see from that illustration, in the process of going from birth to our current age, at different times, those of us that have a wounded self-esteem have rejected parts of self. It doesn't mean that there were war stories. Yes, there are many people that had war stories, I mean, terrible things, diving under the bed to, 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 to keep from being clobbered, uh, awful, awful stories. Those are true. But just as valid are those that are wounded that don't have war stories. And one thing about care that I think is so important is you don't have to justify your woundedness. You don't have to say, the reason I'm wounded is because ABC war story. The fact is, if for some reason you don't like what you see, if there's that feeling of self-rejection, you don't have to justify how it got there. It's just there. That's where you're starting. Hear that. That's not, that's the way I am, period. It's, that's the way I am, comma, and now I choose to care enough about myself and those in my life to begin changing awkwardly. Exclamation point. Feel the difference between those two sentences. That's how I am, and that's where I'm starting, and I'm committed to the process of change. They may sound similar. The results are incredibly different, incredibly different. The fact is, as adult children, 
we have an autoimmune disease. Those of you that were here at the Journey series remember what I talked about. I'm not going to go into the material in depth from before because many of you have already heard it in terms of that process of self-rejection. But what happens is when we reject aspects of ourselves, one of two things tends to happen. Either we begin to drown in shame, self-hatred, or we become pretzelized in blame. In blame. Now, I would like you all to open up your lungs and to feel the following phrase. You ready? Look what you did to me! I'll wait. And you know I will. We'll spend 45 minutes waiting. Or you can do it. Take your choice. Recovery is all about choice. Look what you did to me. Now with more feeling, more passion. Look what you did to me. Getting better. Again. Now I want you to feel it in your toes. <coughs> Look what you did to me. Feels kind of good, doesn't it? Gets the old juices going. Huh? Isn't that nice? Now, I want you to try something kind of strange. We do a lot of work in the handbook and in care with split screens. On the left, I want you to see yourself miserable, having a panic attack, depressed, in the middle of an out-of-control eating disorder, chemical dependency, codependent kind of, of, of experience. Sounds like fun, huh? On the left side is the epitome of your woundedness. Okay? On the right-hand side of that screen, I want you to see yourself down in San Diego, sitting at a real expensive hotel by the pool, surrounded by friends, friends that love you, friends that really care about you as you are. Now I want you to start with the left side. Ah, no sticking over to the right side. Stay on the left for a moment. That's where you're at the epitome of your woundedness. And as you take a moment to step in the left side and feel all of that that goes with the left side, I want to hear from the top of your head to the bottom of your toes, look what you did to me. Get in the left side. Are you ready? Get in the left side. Feel it. Feel all that yuckiness. Clinical talk again. Get it going. And now let's do it. Look what you did to me! Right? Now stay on the left side for a little bit more and let's get one more good punch. Let's really make them know what they've done to us, okay? Ready? Look what you did to me! Now come out and dust yourself off. Dust yourself off. Step into the right side. Feel what it's like. It's sunny. Just a slight breeze, just enough to kind of cool you down. Surrounded by people that really care about you. Beautiful setting. You ready? Are you in that? Are you on the right side? Everybody made the shift from left to right. Now, let's hear it. Look what, come on. Look what you did. Come on. Look what you did to me. What, what, what's the matter? What happened? 
What's the problem? Same words. I know you can say the words. What's the difficulty? It doesn't fit on the right side, does it? It doesn't fit on the right side. Take a moment to think about that. The only way we can maintain that blame is by staying on the left side. We can't be on the right side and hold on to the blame. And so we tend to choose the left side. Not because we like the left side, but because we have our fist around this yuck called blame. Now, that doesn't mean the things that happened to you were okay. There were a lot of not okay things that happened to many of us in this room. I mean, terribly not okay things. Physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, neglect. I'm not saying those things are okay. The question is, do you really care enough about the person that was the perpetrator to stay on the left side? Just to show them? Think about that. You stay on the left side to let them know what they did to you. And they'd be dead. Or not care. What loyalty, huh? Isn't that amazing loyalty? Have they really earned that loyalty? Have they earned that degree of sacrifice that keeps you from the right side? I don't think so. So I choose to live my life in the present on the right side. Every chance I get. And you know something? It's just as habit-forming as the left side. Not at first. But over time, the right side becomes just as habit-forming. The difficulty is that we often let our kids, those little kids inside, make the decisions. We continue to follow the game plan from Auschwitz. The game plan from the awful kinds of things from the past or the not so awful kind of things from the past that led to our old program. Those things were designed for survival, not for living. Survival is survival. Living is living. And the two don't go together real well. They require different kinds of qualities. So if you want to be on the right side, you need to begin to adapt the kinds of attitudes, the kinds of behaviors that go with the right side. Now there's one thing I've learned, 20 years of working in people's lives. I have yet to find an adult child that wasn't an incredibly good student. They learned to survive. They learned to do all kinds of things that would appear dysfunctional in Disneyland. Would seem to be very dysfunctional in terms of an intimate relationship. But made perfect sense in that original setting. 
Take a moment to consider the decisions that you're living out today that were made in a very different setting. Take a moment to consider whether those kinds of environments are what you're wanting today. If they are, no problemo. If they're not, big problemo. Because those strategies were designed, those decisions were designed to be effective in Auschwitz, the concentration camp, not Modesto or Livingston or wherever. They weren't designed to be useful in an intimate relationship. They weren't designed to give you healthy self-esteem. They were designed to help you survive. Unless I'm mistaken, it worked. Any of you here that didn't survive? Raise your hand if you didn't survive. Proves my case. Now I want you to take a moment to appreciate the fact that your strategies, your old program worked. Take a moment to really respect the creativity that went into those survival decisions, those survival strategies. Take a moment to appreciate those kids for their spunk, their creativity. Feel what it's like to see it accurately. Appreciate it was the best choice you had at that moment. And appreciate that you may have different choices now as an adult compared to when you're five years old or nine years old or 13 years old. There are different choices available today. Add that to the feeling. Don't shove it down your throat, but just relax into that notion. Breathe into that notion that you have different resources today in October 1991 than you had when you were four years old or ten years old. It's a fact. It's simply a fact. The question is, are you willing to accept that fact and actively be aware take action on that awareness or do you want to continue on the left side blaming or shaming you have a choice you have a right to choose the left side but if you're sitting across from me don't convince me that there's no choice I won't buy it I don't mean blaming yourself for the choices you're making. I'm simply saying take responsibility for that choosing. So, is self-esteem mean feeling good? How many of you would say that self-esteem means feeling good? How many would use that as a definition? Feeling good. A couple people started raising their hands. Oh, must be the wrong answer because most people didn't raise their hands. <laughs> I'll see who raised it. Then if it's enough of them, then I'll do it too. I understand perfectly. I've done it many times in many uh, situations like this. The fact is, it's healthy to feel bad when you're going the wrong direction. 
It's healthy to feel bad about going the wrong direction. It's not useful to feel bad about yourself for going the wrong direction because you are not your direction. Remember? You're not your doing. You're not human doings. You're human beings. Yeah, you're the one behind the wheel. But you can hate yourself, you can blame yourself, or you can turn around. You need to appreciate, though, when you do that, it's weird. It's real weird when you first get to San Diego and you're sitting out there because one thing for many adult children is they learned that hope was a terrible trickster. You get your hopes up and pow! You know, have you ever watched boxing? How many of you ever watched a boxing match? It's okay to admit it. It's Modesto. <laughs> you know, you're out there and you're boxing and you're hitting each other and you're all tight and the bell rings. And it's supposed to be safe. With adult children, often after the bell rang and they'd let their guard down, pow, right in the kisser. They learned oftentimes that hope was dangerous because it hurt too much. It hurt too much. But without hope, all there is is despair. People wonder why it is normal, normal for adult children to have depression and anxiety. That's not pathology. It's just unhealthiness. Living without hope is despairing. And when you give up hope for Lent, and Easter never comes, despair is an appropriate emotion. It's appropriate. Anxiety, when you're six years old giving a lecture to adults, is appropriate. How often do we send our kids inside out to do adult things? And then wonder why we get nervous. And we usually wait for the hardest things to send them out to do. You know, the easy things the adult does, the hard things the kid does. You ever notice that? You gotta talk to your boss about a raise, <laughs> out comes the kid. Hello, um, could you, could you give me a raise? Please, oh, no, 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 I'll come back. Anxiety is appropriate when a kid is in an adult position. What's inappropriate is the lack of supervision. What's inappropriate is allowing that kid to continue doing the tough stuff over and over and over again. That's continuing the abuse. That's continuing the neglect right into 1991. Self-esteem isn't always feeling good. Sometimes self-esteem has to do with feeling real uncomfortable. I have no doubt that some of you are feeling real uncomfortable tonight, things that you've heard. 
I doubt if there's one care meeting that people don't feel uncomfortable. But when you're building new muscles, how do you know that it's doing anything if you don't have sore muscles? If you're working out to build up muscles, and after you work out real hard, there's no soreness, you didn't do enough weight. You didn't put enough tension into the process. You ain't doing nothing. You're spinning your wheels. Being uncomfortable is healthy and good. Being comfortable being uncomfortable is recovery. Being comfortable being uncomfortable is recovery. The difference between me now and say 15 years ago is I am now comfortable being uncomfortable. Up here talking, doing other things. It's like it's not going to kill me. It just hurts. It hurts so good to be alive, to be living instead of surviving. But it's uncomfortable. I think a very good definition of self-esteem that isn't based on Marin hot tub fluff, uh, that mentality was just so dead. You know, hey man, I'm going to do my thing. And if you don't like it, just get out of my face. Isn't that a great way to build intimacy? You know, Fritz Perl said, I'll do my thing, you do your thing, and if we get together, fine, and if not, oh well. Huh? Doesn't that sound like relationships today? The ashtray's full, sell the car. The relationship takes work, drop it. Boy, what a dead position. What a stupid, dead position. And I mean that descriptively because it don't work. Anything worth having is worth working for. Women, I want you to close your ears for a moment. Men, I want you to listen. Close your ears, women. Men, listen. It's okay to learn how to be intimate. It's okay to be awkward and clumsy learning how to be intimate. What's not okay is continuing to lie to yourself and say, well, <laughs> I just don't do feelings. <laughs> you know, I just don't do feelings. You know, I'm a man and men don't do feelings. Well, men do feelings. And men are learning that we have been so wounded by that lie. The women's movement is right that women need to esteem themselves and each other. But they are absolutely dead wrong when they think they're the only ones that got shortchanged. Because the other half of the coin is just as damaged and it's time to stop blaming and fighting and realize both sides of the coin are real warped. And that's where we're starting. So what? That's just where we're starting. 
So self-esteem isn't just feeling good. Sometimes self-esteem is feeling real scared and doing it anyway. Sometimes it's a matter of, of risking something that feels like it's so hard, but you do it anyway and you feel good about it. It may not turn out good. You may be like I did, crawling to first base and missing, but I felt good that I was out there trying it. The only mistake is not being on the field. And I am really sick and tired of this myth that's even being popularized by some psychologists, uh, mental health types. That's what we call ourselves, <laughs> mental health types. Sometimes we can be real unhealthy. That somehow men and women are so intrinsically different that it's natural that they can never have a conversation. That is stupid. And it's a lie. Now men, I'm pulling your covers. I have a right. I is one of you, even if I can't catch the ball. <laughs> I'm still one of you. And it's out of love and caring that I'm saying what I'm saying. I have sat around friends of mine who could tell me the name of every player on both sides of the football thing. <laughs> well, you can see I'm a jock. <laughs> and they can talk about plays from two games ago, or in baseball, or basketball. And they can tell about this player, or remember when da 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 da, and they, and they just go into tremendous detail. But put them in front of their wife, Brain dead. <laughs> Brain dead. No one's home. Do you know why you know who's on what team? Because you're interested. Do you know why you remember it? Because it's fun. It's part of that male bonding. You know? And you better know it or they're going to think you're weird. The other guys. So you're motivated. There is nothing more precious in an intimate relationship. If you didn't have mirrors, if you didn't have models that taught you how to do it, how can you expect yourself to do it well today? Where you're starting. Keyword, where you're starting. There's no way you could. Self-esteem is starting where you're starting in transit, in all the important areas of your life, so that you're moving toward what you feel good about as character, as who you are as a human being. So what I want you to consider, men, women, keep your ears closed now. You notice whenever someone tells you not to listen, you always listen more? I do the same thing. Care groups have a lot of men in them. And they're gutsy. It takes a lot of courage for a man to come and be vulnerable with other men and women and with their partners. It takes a lot more courage to be vulnerable and awkward and clumsy 
than it is to do what comes naturally. Most of the guys on Just Friends, the baseball team this year, ended up being kind of real athletes. I don't, they had no business being on an E-League team. They would jump up sideways and catch the ball. They'd do this, they'd do that. They'd always catch it, you know? It's no big deal for them to be out on the field. It was a big deal for me to be on the field because I was so awkward and clumsy. If, as a man, you don't know how to do it, I'm talking about being intimate. Sex and intimacy are not the same. They can go together. But men, if you want to have your partner, your wife, your partner see you as a tremendous lover, do foreplay. Do you know what foreplay is? It's a four-letter word, talk. T-A-L-K. And I won't try to spell listen because I'll probably massacre it, but <laughs> fill in the letters yourselves. Listening, talking, caring about this person in front of you is the best foreplay you're ever going to have. Snuggle, cuddle, experience your partner as a whole human being. Esteem your partner. Esteem yourself in your awkwardness. Change is possible. But it takes courage. It takes guts. So the question is, guys, are you man enough to care? Are you man enough to care? Are you going to wimp out with things like football? Sissy stuff like football. Are you going to go for the real courage and learn how to care? probably one of the two most important tools in the handbook, the care handbook, is the self-image thermostat. It breaks down, organizes into nine categories, significant areas of day-to-day -day living, being, and doing. Behaviors. What kind of ways do you behave towards yourself? How do you act toward yourself? How do you act toward others? What is your behavior toward others? And what are you willing to accept from others? One thing I get real hot about is women that wait until after it's dead before they grow a backbone. They take it, and they take it, and they take it. It's fine, dear. I hate your guts, dear. I will smile you to death. And they will take neglect and they will take abuse until the spark is dead and they'll grow a backbone. And suddenly the guy goes, Well, oh, I didn't know! 
I'll change. Rot, jerk. <laughs> the spark's dead. And so the guy tries even harder. Maybe she'll change her mind, so he'll try even harder. I see this all the time. And it makes her madder. Why? Because they waited too long to grow the backbone. If you don't like your behavior toward others, if you don't like your behavior toward yourself, if you don't like the behavior of significant people in your life towards you, change now. Teach that person how to treat you differently. It is not respectful to allow someone to abuse you. It is not loving to allow someone to abuse you. It's not loving or respectful to abuse yourself. The whole dimension of feelings. How do you feel about yourself? How do you feel about others? How do you show that feeling toward others? How do you show that feeling toward yourself? And what are you willing to accept in terms of emotions and feelings from other people? Oftentimes, before recovery, when I was more like Mr. Spock from the old Star Trek, I didn't do feelings. I just didn't do them. I was dead from the neck down. I made Spock look real vivacious. Okay. But now I do emotions. I had to learn how to do emotions. I had to learn how to fight with my wife. I'll talk to you when you're rational, dear. And being a passionate Italian that she is, that went over like a Led Zeppelin, you know. Until <laughs> she did it to me and I hated it. What are you willing to accept from other people? Are you willing to accept caring? Are you willing to let the wall down? Are you willing to move the wall to one side so you can accept caring from others? Accept the esteeming from others? Are you willing to esteem yourself? Are you willing to esteem other people? These are important questions. And dialogue. How do you talk to yourself? We call it in the handbook, the commentator. Sit up straight. Don't cross those legs. What's the matter with you? Get that purse off your lap. Take those glasses off. You look like a gook. Geek. Whatever. <laughs> Dorky. Most of us would punch the lights out of someone that talked to us the way we talk to ourselves. We don't have time at this moment to do this adequately, but I would like you to just take a moment to begin to pay attention to how you talk to yourself. Not just the words, but the tone, the attitude of that commentator, that voice in your head. And when you leave tonight, spend some time continuing to pay attention to that voice and how you're talking to yourself. How do you talk to others? Don't do that. Look it. Look, would you look at her? Look what she's doing. I told you not to do that when I'm giving a talk. You're embarrassing me. Now, wouldn't that make her feel loved <laughs> and valued? After 20 years of being married to me, she's used to it. I mean... You in the audience may want to lynch me, but she's, she's, 
She'll kill me later. <laughs> Do we respond to the people that we care about in a loving way? Do we say esteeming things to the people we care about? Do we give the blessing to the people we care about? Oh, Jim, you don't understand. I don't, I don't do blessings. I mean, I just don't know how to say positive things. I never had it done to me. I don't know how to. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were still alive. I mean, you can't learn? No, it'd be artificial. Oh, like the first time you do anything is artificial? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like that you could learn to say loving things and at first it would be awkward, but after a while you get the hang of it and get some practice. Well, you, you're trying to trick me. <laughs> Don't do that psycho babble on me. I'm just the way I am. Okay. You have that right. I love change. You have a right not to. But you can learn if you're willing to be awkward and clumsy. You can learn to talk in a more esteeming way. You can learn to be more respectful of other people, verbally, emotionally, behaviorally. You can learn to talk to yourself in a more esteeming way. I could have beat the snot out of myself when I fell down on go going to first base. See, the moral to that story is, if you're looking at second, when you're running to first, you're going to fall down. That's the moral to the story. I want to give it to you just in case you didn't get it. If you want to run to first base, look at first base. When you get to first base, look at second base. Third base, home. Look where you're going. You start looking at second base when you're running to first, You'll do a Ricky Henderson slide. It's normal. It's normal. The California Task Force to Promote Self-Esteem and Personal and Social Responsibility defines healthy self-esteem as the process of appreciating our own worth and importance, having the character to be accountable for ourselves and to act responsibly toward others. It doesn't say it always feels good. When I'm being a jerk to Sonia or the kids, and yes, even as a psychologist, I can be a jerk, and I can be a real powerful good jerk, <laughs> you know? That's not new program. It's just that I'm in transit. And when I'm being a jerk, I don't like me at that moment. I don't like my jerkiness at that moment. When I'm jerking, okay, I'm not a jerk, I am jerking. I'm not my behavior. And I'm responsible as the chooser of my behavior, whether to continue it or not. I'm not saying I'm not responsible. I'm not saying that because my mom addressed me funny or some other problem from the past that I don't have to take responsibility for how I am in the present. If you don't like how you're being, change. Do something different. 
Now you can do that in a random basis, or you can do it in a purposeful basis. We need a road map. How many of you can get from here to Cleveland without a map? Just get in the car and go. How many of you can get to Cleveland without a map? Smart Alex! <laughs> I hate people like you! I get lost going to the bathroom and with a 40 minute bladder that could be a real problem. I couldn't get to Cleveland without a map. But look how we handle recovery. Don't tell me what to do. No one's going to control me. I don't need no stinking map. I'm a man. I'm a woman. Hear me roar. <laughs> Go, Helen. <laughs> the fact is, we need a map. How many of you have put a toy together? I don't need no stinking instructions. What are all these pieces left over? Do we have to feel bad about ourselves for being smart enough to read the instructions? If I tell you there's a buried treasure here at the center plaza, I've got some maps if you'd like them. No thanks, Jim. I don't do control by other people. I'll find them. I'll find it. But this map tells right where it is. Ah, shut up. Don't tell me what to do. Okay. Or we can relax into recovery. Instead of trying to hate ourselves into recovery. And recovery is the process of building healthy esteem. I don't care what you're recovering from. CD issues, chemical dependency issues, eating disorders, depression, panic, anxiety, codependent kinds of problems. Doesn't matter. The process of change is the same. There are, there are differences. Someone with a chemical dependent issue needs to embrace sobriety as part of their recovery. Someone with an eating disorder needs to see who's doing the eating. Which kid inside is doing the eating? And learn how to lovingly supervise mealtime. Lovingly supervising mealtime. You cannot hate yourself. You cannot scare yourself into recovery. But you can love yourself into recovery. Hear the difference. And there is a blueprint. There are certain principles that work. That help us learn how to feel, behave, and dialogue differently. They're in the handbook, but let me just give them to you very quickly. These principles simply work. When you follow these principles, recovery, healthier esteem becomes the path of least resistance. One, being non-judgmental, open, and accurate. And all of these principles are based on a growing commitment, not a mastery, but just a growing commitment.
Abbott and Costello are the fathers of recovery. Remember Abbott and Costello? Are any of you old enough to remember Abbott and Costello? <laughs> or wise enough to remember? I shouldn't say it that way. I got it. I got it. I ain't got it. That's recovery. I got it. I got it. I ain't got it. I ain't got it. I ain't got it. I got it. Ain't got it. Ain't got it. Ain't got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. It's not a perfect process. You cannot judge and get into recovery. Learning to observe instead of judge is an imperative step. With that allows you to be open and accurate. Number two, believing that we are all fallible human beings. Oh, I thought I was the only one. I thought they were the only ones. I'm not. I'm perfect. How many of you bust your hump trying to be perfect? Who likes being... <laughs> yeah, I know. I, know. I, I saw you. <laughs> right on. Who likes to be around perfect people? Do you like to be around perfect people? I don't. And yet we try so hard to be perfect. Doesn't make sense. Number three, understanding that we react to life through our perceptual filters. Could you put that, that one on just real briefly? I've been too blabby, and so some of these I'm going to have to rush through a little bit. We do not deal with reality directly. We deal with reality through the filters that we learn to use in the process of growing up. We're not consciously aware of them, but they have a profound effect on what we take in. Really look at that and begin, as you did with the mirrors, as you did with your self-image, to begin to appreciate the filters that you're working with. Number four, acknowledging and accepting the reality in the present. Accepting that you're starting where you're starting. People want to start where they want to end up. Notice that? I want to go out there and catch every ball that comes my way. Huh, so, it doesn't work that way. It's not the human way. You start where you're starting and move forward. If you will celebrate the fact that you're starting, and this is what care is all about, is celebrating your starting. I get feedback from people in care and they'll talk about one week they're just cooking, you know, and they come in and people, oh, wow, I wish I could have what you got. And next week they're crawling in on their belly. Same person. You know, I got it, I got it, I ain't got it. We're starting where we're starting. We are not our woo-hoo-hoo and we're not our bellies. We're us on the path. Enjoy the got it's, learn from the ain't got it's. It's a system that actually works. This is kind of a choker. Acknowledging and accepting the reality of the present. Ugh. I think I just said that one, didn't I? Oh my God, he made a mistake. What are we gonna do? Shoot the sucker! <laughs> Put the next one up if you would. Believing in mutual respect and valuing. This is where powerful vulnerability comes in. When we can accept our being, when we can accept the other person's being, then powerful vulnerability becomes possible. I may not like what I'm doing, but if Sonia says, Jim, you're really blowing this, 
and I can see it as the this rather than me the person, I can look at that and go, oh wow, thanks, I appreciate that. You don't have to defend. In that upper quadrant, where you make the choice to perceive yourself and the other person as being valuable human beings, without any double standards. Double standards are the most toxic thing you can have in a relationship. Either direction, they're toxic. The fact is, we're starting where we're starting, and if I've done something, I want to learn about it. I choose not to judge myself. I choose not to condemn myself for seeing more accurately. There's a section in the handbook called Living Through the Rearview Mirror, and talks about what happens when we first begin the process of being more accurate with ourselves, and we see all the caca that we're doing. That's, again, clinical talk. And what we find is that as we see more accurately, we have a choice. We can condemn ourselves, or we can feel good about seeing accurately what we don't like and want to change. Hear the difference. Number six, nurturing a healthy parenting relationship with a wounded inner child. Those kids that you saw in the first picture floating around in that pool of shame and blame. You notice in the picture there's two camcorders. Now I really emphasize this very strongly in the handbook. If you become the child, regress back and become the child, you're going to be in the same exact quandary you were in originally. <coughs> when you want to make contact with that wounded child, let the view come from the adult to the child. Allow the feelings, and it, again, it's all, it's all there uh, written out, so I'm not going to go into detail right now, but allowing the feelings to float up to an image of that hurt child, but keep the kid in focus. Let yourself see the child, and then you will not become the child. The kid is already stuck in the pain. You as the adult don't have to. There is a different way. You can be there for the child, provide the resources for that child that's stuck in that timeless bubble, and help bring healing about. Number seven, nurturing a growing relationship with a loving higher power. And I realize I'm going over a few minutes and I... No, I'm not going to apologize. You guys are stuck. I would like to read just very briefly, and this, I really debated this because I do tend to really slaughter when I read, but this is very important. I can't think of how to say it better, so I'm just going to read it right out of the handbook. Under principle seven, this principle is a common stumbling block for many people desiring recovery, both in 12-step programs and in care. One reason for this is the confusion between religion and spirituality. The specific name that we give our higher power has to do with the question of salvation and religion. While the personal qualities we see in our higher power have a direct impact on our recovery, we have found that as human beings we do have a basic need to feel a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives. This need to feel a loving relationship within ourselves, between ourselves and others, and with a force greater than self 
is what we call spirituality. We recognize the fundamental differences between religion and spirituality and are talking about the basic need for spiritual relationships in recovery. We are not saying that the two cannot coexist. We're not saying that. But rather appreciating the difference. In care, we believe that no person has the right to force his or her beliefs on another. I truly believe that if you try to have recovery without facing this very difficult issue of spirituality, it's like trying to walk on an airplane wing at 10,000 feet without an oxygen tank. You can get lightheaded and you're going to fall off. We need to have a force greater than self. There are many obstacles that tend to make that difficult. Questions that we ask ourselves that are poised in a way that make it a real stumbling block. We talk about some of those in the handbook. But the fact is, if we can have a sense that there is a power greater than self that cares and believes the principles of new program, that embodies, personifies those principles of new program that I was just reading, that cares about us, that is a walking, living, breathing representation of those principles, then we want to be like that. It's very different to try to learn a set of rules. Jesse is 10, Nathan is 8. If Jesse is doing something, Nathan does the same. You notice that? How many of you have kids? How many of you are kids? <laughs> Checking if you're listening. If Jesse is doing something, he's really involved in it, Nathan is a clone. Copies him step by step, word by word. As soon as Jesse tries to tell Nathan to do something, no way. We do not respond the same to a relationship with, a, with, a, with an entity that we feel loves us and that we look up to. It's very different than trying to follow a set of rules. You have a right to just follow the set of rules. That's really okay. No one in care is going to force anything on spirituality. You can believe in the great pine tree. I don't care. I truly don't care. But could you show me those personified qualities of new program that that pine tree is going to teach you? That that pine tree is going to put one of its limbs around your shoulder and cry with you and laugh with you and celebrate with you and pick you up when you slide into first base and say, well, you blew that one. What are we going to do? I love you. I know you can do it. I haven't found a pine tree that can do that. If you have, wonderful. Let me know. I'm always open for new things. Just make the distinction between religion and spirituality. You can have both or you can have one. I don't... There's a lot of people with religion that don't have spirituality. There's people with spirituality that don't have religion. Care isn't trying to force anything. But we are...
advocating in a very strong way to set yourself up to succeed. And part of that is having a sense of counting that your decisions, your character development has meaning in the world. Okay? What sense you make out of that is up to you. The closer that that comes to the embodiment, the personification of these healing principles, these healthy principles, the easier recovery is. You notice that hole in the middle of the one side? It's like a rat ate it. That's the source of depression. That's the source of anxiety and panic. That's the source of all the addictions. Right there, that hole. That hole is the source that causes all the other manifestations. And the last principle is that recovery is a lifetime process. And that we need to care, be committed to caring about ourselves and others on that path. I'll tell you, I, I had a neat experience. Sonia and I went out to dinner. That was a neat experience too, but that wasn't the neat experience I want to share with you. The neat experience was we went out in uh, Frontier Village and we happened to drive by the Serenity Place. And I looked in the window and I saw this group of people sitting around a circle. It wasn't a big circle, but they were sitting around this circle. And they were learning to be real with each other and with themselves. There was no professional there. There was no cost involved. The only cost was being willing to care enough about themselves and each other to be there on a Friday night or a Saturday night. Whatever night I was there. I've always been a detailed person. But it doesn't matter what night. Here in Modesto, there's meetings every night. There's two or three meetings some nights. There's one in Oakdale. Any of you from Oakdale? There are folks, this gal gave me a call and said, Jim, could you plug Oakdale? Because we're having a hard time because it's hard to get the word out. It's just a very small little group, like maybe three, four people that are meeting. What guts? You know? There's other meetings that, that have 25, 30 people. Again, what guts? <laughs> you don't have to do it alone. You don't have to have any money. It's free. And it's extremely expensive. Because you can't go to care very long without realizing there is a reality about change you end up giving up the denial about I am just the way I am if you go to care very long. If you want to learn to care, you got to start where you're starting, wherever that may be. Once you start and you celebrate the fact that you're starting, find at least one other person to care with. Some people say, Jim, you know, I don't do groups. I just don't do them. You know, I'm a prominent member of this community. I can't let anybody see what a scared kid I am or, you know, whatever the reason happens to be. There's a million reasons. 
Find one person. Chew the material with one other human being. Wrestle the hard stuff with one other human being. Be real with one other human being. And then maybe two other human beings. And three, and four. And at some point you begin to realize it doesn't matter how many people there are there. You're there for you. You're there for them. You don't care whether your breath stinks or not. Whether your pits stink or not. And all these things that TV tells us we're supposed to worry about. I'm grossing my sister out again. <laughs> She's an easy target. Start where you're starting. I hope I've made you a little uncomfortable. If I have, then this talk was worthwhile. Thank you very much. You ain't going to make me cry again. <laughs> If there, if there are any, stop it. <laughs> if there, I'm a softy, I can't help it. Anyone that has a quick question, if you're gonna to come to the front, and then I gotta tell you, I, I, I called my mommy, <laughs> and I said, Mom, I am scared to death because I, I said I'd have a book signing. And when I get scared, and I start to regress a little bit, I couldn't even tell you my mom's name. And I was afraid that maybe some, some person I've, I've intimately been involved with would come up and ask me to sign their book and I'd go blank on the name and somehow cause pain. And I said, Mommy, what should I do? And she said, how about being honest? I said, I guess I could try that. So. The talk was easy. The signing is real scary for me. Partly because I don't spell very well and partly because when I'm in that kind of situation, I go blank. So please, if you want me to sign it, tell me your name, even if it's my wife <laughs> or my mother. I would greatly appreciate it. And that concludes Building Healthy Self-Esteem, Relaxing Into Change. Thank you.